Welcome back to the Open Source Startup Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Robbie from Cowboy Ventures, and I'm joined as always with my favorite co-host, Tim Chan from Essence VC. And today we are very excited to have an awesome guest on. We have Guy Pajarni, who's the founder of Sneak, the open source, very well-known open source developer security platform. And we are super excited to have him here. So thank you so much, Guy. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So on this podcast, we love going all the way back to the beginning. And so we'd love to start with where the idea for Sneak came from. Sure. So Sneak maybe like, you know, in a quick nutshell is, is, is really sort of a solution to help developers write secure code, right? To sort of build secure applications. Uh, and to an extent, it's the culmination of my journeys. And so I, you know, I've sort of been part of the security parts of the Israeli army and then went into one of the first application security companies that got acquired by a company that got acquired by IBM. And during that journey, we, you know, we kept wanting, like I was saying, shift left, you know, back in 2002. And it was really like an efficiency comment. We had all these charts that showed how if you fix a bug, you know, in development, it's a hundred times cheaper than if you fixed it in production. So it was an efficiency play. And we, you know, we succeeded financially, but we didn't succeed in getting kind of the product really adopted by developers. And then I left and I founded a web performance company at the sort of the early days of DevOps, you know, and it's kind of a part of the first wave of DevOps as New Relic came along. That company got acquired by Akamai, where I was CTO for a bunch of years. And it was a part of the Velocity Conference, you know, where sort of some of the seminal original DevOps presentations came along and the programming committee there. And so kind of got a taste for DevOps and an appreciation for that, you know, having left security. And Sneak, to an extent, it's like the merge of both of those journeys. It was kind of the realization that, you know, with the advent of DevOps and agile development and continuous deployments, the idea of securing software from the outside is, uh, you know, it's just uh, doomed to fail. You know, it was never a great idea to try and do it, but, you know, it just doesn't work. And that we have to think differently. And the only way in this sort of independent team, continuous, you know, software development reality, the only way to secure software is to get developers to embrace it. And the other kind of learning maybe from the journey is a little bit of not just the need of it, but the how and kind of the light bulb moment was understanding that if you want to get developers to embrace security or to use a security tool, you have to build a developer tooling company, not a security company. You know, have to build a solution and a company and a brand and a community that feel at home with the other tools that developers choose to use with the other companies that developers kind of use to engage uh, or choose to engage with. That's kind of the uh, the premise of it. So we set out to build that. And then we've picked, and we can talk about specific you know, iterations, we picked open source security as the first threat to tackle and evolved from there. But it's always been first and foremost about this dev first security, bring security into the DevOps kind of mindset. Uh, I guess today it's called DevSecOps, although that's a different people will have different interpretation of that term. So yeah, that's kind of the, uh, that's how we got to be. Awesome. So this morning I was reading your initial press release from December 2015 when Sneak launched. And so why don't you bring us back to then and like what was really part of that initial launch? Like what was Sneak at that point? And also maybe as part of that, you can talk about why open source is so important for a product like Sneak to really go after developers. That launch was a sort of a fun story. So I, I generally believe in iterations and, you know, I, I think there's almost like a an element of, of hubris in sort of thinking that you can build for a year and a half and just sort of know what you're building and then come out with something glorious and get it right. And so I'm, I'm not that smart, you know, so I feel like the better way to do it is to build something and ship it and ship it as one of the core values today at Sneak as well and see what happens and sort of iterate and learn with people. I also think that, you know, generally, if you're good, then you optimize for the feedback you get. If you're not good, it's a different problem. But if you want to build a bottom-up sort of dev engagement, sort of self-serve solution as we set out to do, then 
you have to put yourself in a position in which you get feedback on how well you're doing that or not. And so the premise was always to sort of ship very quickly. And so we technically, we incorporated in July 2015 at a contractor sort of a build out, you know, some uh, some of the work as I finalized uh, getting uh, Danny Grander and Asaf Hefetz as co-founders, both amazing. And so, you know, they came along and on October 30th, you know, with sort of a couple more people on the team and uh, already some fundraising, we presented at a Velocity conference in Europe, Amsterdam, and we, you know, we launched it focusing on open source security. I think for us, uh, and so, you know, we were sort of off to the races and we'll probably talk about the journey that followed. The world of DevOps predicates on independent teams that, you know, kind of own things end to end. And these teams increasingly have the mandate to choose the right tools, the right solutions for them to do the job well. And so that sort of world in which, you know, like this team has their own blast radius, their own kind of, you know, choices, creates a lot of mess, but also drives a certain like try before you buy, kind of use before you buy, sort of small scope usage, self-serve adoption type model, more so than things that are maybe central. Because, you know, these are small teams. They're not going to buy for any significant amount. They generally want to move fast. They don't like talking to sort of salespeople. And so I think those reasons and others have created a drive to kind of make the norm in developer tools world be self-serve, be adopted. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find really kind of great, you know, accomplished developer tooling companies that aren't product-led, that aren't self-served, that don't satisfy that need. And so for us, trying to break through two developers and get them to embrace a security solution, really, really anchored on building a tool that is self-serve. And product-led growth and security is not common at all because security is naturally a broad problem. It's, you know, for security people, they can't have every director of engineering, every team, you know, pick a different tool to sort of whatever govern their use of open source. And so, they need something broad. They need some sort of breadth. And so it's very different to how the, the organization sort of typically buys security solutions and how the industry accepts them. But for us, it was the key in sort of building developer tools. Within the sort of bottom-up world, you're trying to think about how would developers, why would people use it? You know, what, like developers are not responsible for security and kind of organizational mandate in many cases. You know, why would they do it? And so as we sort of build that sort of theory, Part of it is the substance. Developers are, you know, we started from secure use of open source. And so we said, okay, like which open source components are you using and are any of them vulnerable and help you, you know, address that. And the reality is that developers are kind of afraid of dependencies. And so this problem space of open source security was just a space that had enough mess that individual developers have felt the pain and have sort of felt the needs to address. And the second is that most development practices evolve through role models. like. The reality is that not everybody thinks deeply about every aspect of software development. Most of the things are happened by best practices. And so CICD adoption has really kind of jumped up, especially in DevOps scene when Travis and Circle kind of popularized, you know, sort of the easy to use online CIs, test-driven development, unit tests. And, you know, a lot of these things, they, they evolve through kind of role models. And I think open source projects serve as great role models to drive kind of new methodologies and show people it's doable. And so we invested a lot in getting open source projects to adopt Sneak first to secure the open source components themselves and their dependencies, but also to sort of show that it is a good practice, that it is an easy practice, because every time we would secure some open source project and open a fixed pull request, you know, on some of the issue, everybody watching that project will now get an email, will get notified. And so it served as, a, as an educational facility. Last thing I would say, and I know this is a bit of a long answer, is that 
Snake is actually not an open source company. It is like an open source affiliated company, maybe a little bit like GitHub, which technically Git is open core, but in practice, GitHub is not at all like 99% of the code there is that is closed source. But we built the company with sort of the ethos of open source with, you know, being a great citizen in the open source ecosystem because our kind of core mission was around securing development and around, you know, helping open source be secure, secure the software that gets produced and help people consume open source securely. And I think that driver, right, of adoption in the open source scene, that establishment of a new development practice made open source and the open source community a fundamental foundation, you know, for our success. I want to drill in a little deeper into the original sort of like direction. Because I think shift left and also sort of the DevSecOps, all these buzzwords we all hear about all the time now. Back in 15, I never heard of it. I was a developer working in Mesosphere, working on Docker, right? I think DevOps, SRE, you've been hearing that term quite a bit for a long time. But I've been working on so much open source. There isn't really a solution. I think everybody adopted for scanning dependencies, or there's no standard yet. So Going backwards, you know, I actually asked Elliot from Bullstart. I asked him what kind of question I should ask you. He said, ask Guy how many node meetups he presented in the beginning. And I think this kind of leads to the question, right? There's a lot of choices to make. Back into the standards of back in 2015, one of the sort of the core pillar, I think, why Sneak succeeded was developer experience, I assume, right? But I don't think that was the standard developer experience back then. So I want to pick your brain on how did you pick the first product? and which open source to focus on? And how did you thought about developer experience when you started? Because it wasn't just like you're copying everybody, right? There are some changes you're trying to make. And I, I don't think that was all that intuitive back then. So if you can talk back in 15 mindset, how did you make those choices and trade-offs? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. It was kind of the crux of what we're trying to do. So let me add like a, a little bit of sort of decoration on it. So first of all, I generally believe that when you found a company, you need to anchor in the future and chart a path, you know, to today. So so you have to sort of build a thesis about where the market is headed and then try to say, okay, how do I actually get there and sort of survive? And so you do need to think about today, but you have to anchor in tomorrow. You have to anchor in where it's going. And I like to ask the question of, you know, like this problem you're solving, is it going to be more or less needed in five years? Is it going to be more of a problem? And so for us, you know, developer security was pretty clear to us. That was the sort of the thesis that it's going to be needed more. And we decided to start on open source security as a specific kind of problem domain in it. First, we knew that developer security is this big, massive kind of problem. And, you know, we need to kind of bite-size it. And second is, you know, open source security felt like a real problem that is getting stronger, that, you know, the, the likes of Black Duck and other sort of ancient companies were the only ones addressing it. And we've had the dubious pleasure of <laughs> trying to uh, trying to use those tools. And so we felt like it was a real gap. And, you know, it's only strengthening and you're sort of seeing it, didn't see any. So we saw an opportunity to enter on that. And then we also kind of chose that space because it's a, it was an opportunity to do something that was technically more feasible. So static analysis, which we now offer, is a massively, massively hard problem. Like it is just like technically analyzing software, understanding software is just, you know, super, super complicated technology to build. Open source security, while there's a lot of complexity in, in the tech, at the end of the day, it's more of a product problem. It's more of a, you know, how do you engage with open source? And so we felt like we have an opportunity to build something in a reasonable amount of time, in a kind of a high level of accuracy and build that out. And so that was the choice for open source security as the first problem space, which I think, by the way, was key and was our way to get into 
the scene, but also it was very key for us to expand into, you know, code security and infrastructure code and containers and such over time. Developer experience was basically the differentiation. And so we ended up being super philosophical, you know, about what makes a good developer experience and how does it match security. And so we had a lot of meta conversations, a lot of meta conversations on, for starters, like, you know, if I was a developer and I'm tackling open source security, what is different between that versus the lens of a security person? And so, for instance, you know, we realized that, you know, we didn't have all the words for this at the time, but we realized that security anchors in risk. You know, it anchors in, okay, if I tell you about a vulnerability, if you zoom out, you know, a vulnerable library, you zoom out, you want to say which assets are affected, which other applications might have it. You think about risk. When you're a developer and I tell you, you have you know, a vulnerable open source library, your first question is, where in my app am I using this library? What might happen if I upgrade? Like, what might break? And you're kind of anchoring the application. So this is like one of many, but that was one, which is we said, okay, developer versus security, you know, like what is different? And the second was really to be very keen on what makes developers adopt the product because we knew that we're tackling a problem that they generally don't embrace as readily. And uh, that just led to a lot of conversations. And so I'll give you kind of two milestones of the evolution of this sort of developer experience. At the beginning, we had a lot of brand conversations. And so we ended up coming up with catchphrases like be a builder, not a breaker. You know, don't fear monger, which is the default in sort of security land, but rather build like uh, developers. And I had this saying that I still think is, you know, like when you go to to Black Hat or to sort of DEF CON or such, and you come back to any security conference, you kind of want to curl up in a corner and cry. You know, it's like the world is doomed. Nothing will ever be secure. It's not going to work. You know, it's uh, it's done. And when you come back from like Velocity or DevOps conference, you know, the ones that run today, you know, it's like this world of like beauty is like a bunch of people singing Kumbaya together and the web is awesome. And, you know, like uh, look at all these sort of great things that we can do together. And I, you know, I kind of liked, I think I've sort of said this sort of past podcast, which is, you know, I, I prefer singing Kumbaya to crying in corners, you know, like I like that sort of thing better. And so a lot of it was, okay, how do we, how do we preserve that culture? And it came back, for instance, uh, you know, we talked about um, alerts and about color scheme. And so we wanted like a warm website and, you know, very uh, kind of supportive. And at some point we, we encountered that when we tell you about a high security vulnerability, we also want to scare you just a little bit, you know, you know, we want, you, you do need to be alarmed into action a little bit. And those were good conversations. We found some magenta color or something like that, you know, in it, even the sneak purple, which is our kind of, you know, uh, brand color came from that. And so part of it came at the beginning. It's like, okay, we do that. We hired people that had developer experience. We started with a command line interface and a very flexible interface. And as I started off saying, we put it out there and we saw what worked. That learning made us realize that, you know, people downloaded the CLI, which was a bit more understood as a developer experience. A lot of it was inspired by Heroku and they used it and they were successful with it and they tweeted about it and they didn't put it in the build. They didn't continue using it, you know, in, in their system. And when we dug in, we realized it was still too hard, it was still too hard to embrace it, too disruptive. And that led us to the realization that the best way to install Snake would be to add it to your Git repo. And that if you do this sort of next, next, next experience and you just connect it to uh, the Git, then we can naturally do it continuously. We can naturally do things like, you know, we'll test the change set, not a state. When you do a pull request and you made a bunch of changes, we can just test those changes versus a build that kind of tests a state. We can open fixed pull requests and we can do that continuously without you making any effort. And so that was a little bit of like, the advantage of iteration. You know, we put it out there, we couldn't have figured it out before. And then once we figured out the product need, 
we came back to the drawing board and say, okay, we want to connect to Git. What technology do we need to build to do it? And we built some pretty complex things that approximate dependency trees. Like you look at the source code and you want to say which dependencies will be consumed, be fetched, you know, in indirect dependencies without actually building the application. And that wasn't easy. You know, we, and you know, it's very, very hard to replicate across different ecosystems and things like that, but it creates the right experience. And so we always anchored in the developer impression, developer brand, developer experience, and went backward because we felt that was the most important thing to the degree that for a good while, we actually really underserved the security team's experience because we were so kind of tunnel visioned on it. And, you know, a few years in, we really had to correct that because that was our biggest gap. It was, again, a bit of a long answer, but it's basically the deepest topic. And I got to say that we were willing to die on that altar, you know, and we had a bunch of points kind of in the in the journey that, like, are we committed to this? Because the easiest thing is to sort of shift to security. Two years in, we had like 100,000 in annual recurring revenue, right? 100K ARR, not for lack of trying to <laughs> sell the product. And, you know, it really required conviction to sort of, you know, stay true to it. And uh, later on, it worked out pretty well. Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest trade-offs for any founder, especially early days. When every traction is going to the right, every metric is going to the right, obviously you can just keep going down the same direction, but when it isn't, when you choose to actually stay in our conviction versus have to be still flexible. And I think maybe you want to dive into that question because every founder, when you just start a company that's never seen before, brand new category, you have assumptions, but you have to break those assumptions or you have to actually test something. And are there any one or two most memorable things that you assumed was right? And going down a little path, you realized that wasn't true and had a course correct, right? You stay on conviction on developer experience and the dev first security, but I'm sure there's a lot of different things that, oh, when I start a company, this, I'm going to do all these six things on my pitch deck, but it <laughs> never happened that way. Just curious, is there one big sort of like lesson you learned during that journey? early on and you, you changed around and things went much faster or, or, or better? Yeah, there have been many. Well, you know, the first and easiest one is timelines. You know, my original seed deck did have multiple products, even named some of the right products uh, and said, hey, in three months, we will finish the open source security bit and we will go you know, stack this. And then like three years later, you know, at the protest of some of our investors, we launched a second product. You know, it's like it, it really... It always, if the problem is like important enough and kind of worth solving, then, you know, it's almost always more complex than you think. And so definitely timelines I was off. And I'm, I was pretty experienced by that point. <laughs> so I still had them really, really off. The other learning I mentioned was just on the sort of that GitHub thing. And that's the value of iterations. Probably like a, a big one was on the go to market, which is I did have, as I modeled after developer tools, I expected development teams to purchase the product more on their own. And I kind of have grown to appreciate that for most organizations, the organization has put the budget for keeping the organization secure in the security team's hands. And so security owns the budget. They still play a key role in the governance. And while we knew that they're, you know, the eventual key buyer, we learned that there's actually a very big gap between the dev team embracing and using the product and the security team signing the check. And that dev team, sometimes some of them buy, you know, we have, you know, a team edition and some of them purchase, but most of the time it ends up jumping. So it ends up being, so what we've done is we kind of kept, we kept elevating, you know, a bunch of the free tier and we allow a lot for free, understanding that, you know, you can kind of bump up to the the breadth, that sort of, you know, broad view of, uh, of the security team. And today I understand this, that 
developers like depth and security like spread. You know, developers, like if I'm building in my stack, I don't really care if you support another. You know, I need it to be amazing in my stack, and that's all I all I, I need. You know, it's not cynical. It's just, you know, it's what I need. And security is already fragmented with a whole bunch of threats. They have to streamline, you know, they have to govern across the application. So they need something that supports like 80, 90% of your applications. And so that's really like a dissonance between building dev first and building sort of security first. We're dev first, we're sort of committed to this depth first approach, you know, and that's that's our core. But I, I was much more naive around kind of the uh, likelihood that people would buy on their own. That's probably the biggest learning. Like there's been a million others around, you know, new products, around acquisitions. We've been fairly successful with acquisitions, but there's still more learnings. But yeah, those are probably the key ones. I would say with a lot of companies that we talk to on here that are dev first, being open source is actually part of that. So I wanted to ask about whether that was a consideration to make Sneak itself open source when thinking about being a developer first tool and what the kind of trade-offs were and how you thought about that. Because at the time, I mean, I think being open source and security was not common. And there's some companies like Panther that started open source aren't now. But did you think about that as part of this dev first thesis? Yeah, I mean, we've thought about it a fair bit. Look, I'm not that religious about open source. I think open source is a means to an end. I think people put a lot more faith in open source than they think. They think, they don't say that. They say they don't think it, but you know, oftentimes they actually do. If we make it open source and the project will be awesome, suddenly everybody will adopt it. And it doesn't really work that way. You know, open source, there's a lot of open source out there. So you still have to market it. You still have to build a community around it. So I perceive open source as a extreme version of freemium. You know, I think really what you want is you want to say, I want people to be able to embrace my product more easily and I want it to be prevalent. And so what's the best way for me to do that? And in some cases, the answer is open source because the biggest objections are I'm embedding it in my app and I don't want to be beholden to some vendor or security wise, you know, I'm running it on my infrastructure. That's why like modern infrastructure is very open source oriented. And so in some cases, it really is hard to get in without being open source. In many other cases, especially when you're building solutions, it really is all about ease of use and open source. Sometimes you still want to be open source for like trust and for all those elements, but really the easiest solutions to use are the ones that are a service. You know, it's, you know, sometimes it's like it's cheaper than free. You know, it's the cost of ownership is lower. You can do more for your customer. You can evolve the product faster. And so really it sort of boils down to, you know, what's the best way to help your persona, the sort of the best user that you have get successful with the product. I think in the context of Sneak, we talked about it. We realized that, you know, first of all, there has to be a service around the vulnerability source, you know, so that, that one has to be a vulnerability database. We did open source it at the beginning and we realized the only people consuming it were the competitors. And the reason for that was that it, it was just very hard to consume the vulnerability database. You know, it wasn't really a... And so we we shut it back down. It's available online. Developers do need to be able to browse the open source components, but they don't want markdown files. They want a website. You know, they want a place that they can link to. What we did do is we said the product is freemium. It's free. And an individual developer, if they want to secure the code that they're building, shouldn't pay us. They should be able to just use the product for free and they would grow it. Now, if you're an organization and you want to govern your security using Sneak, you should pay us. That should be in the commercial tier. And there's, you know, some volume elements in between. So I think to me, open source, you know, you have to think, you know, but what is it? Like, why is it that you are open sourcing? You know, is it just a philosophical thing? You know, why do you feel people will adopt it? And I would sort of argue that in many, many cases, open source is not the answer. 
sometimes it is, and sometimes it's very important. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a friend of open source, and I think open source is great for many things. But I think in many others, even if you do go open source, you should still build a SaaS version, and you should still build a freemium version in your SaaS. And it's more likely, like you have to ask yourself, do I see the open source users as the top of funnel for my business? Are most of my customers eventually, when you fast forward, when you anchor in the future, going to come from open source usage? Or do I eventually envision the SaaS kind of product, you know, the SaaS platform as being the primary source of users? And it's the sophisticated users that, you know, might want, you know, some collaboration that would uh, that would use open source. And I think many more companies fall into that second bucket than the former. So it's a great tool, but you have to be thoughtful. The last thing I would say is that open source is a one-way door. It's not one way, but it's quite a squeeze to go back. You know, it's a, it's really costly, while freemium and freemium and a service is a very agile thing. And you can sort of zig and zag uh, much more easily. And so you have to be pretty confident to say that open source is the way to do. And I just find a lot of people are not sufficiently thoughtful. If you are thoughtful and you do have a good theory about it, you're probably going to be better positioned to be successful with your open source project and with its adoptions because you understand why it is open source and you focus your energies on making that why come true. And maybe digging very specific about your open source journey because uh, I asked one of my good friends, Ian Livingston, I know he works at Snake, and he said one interesting question to ask you, very specifically, I think, because you open source a CLI pretty much from the get-go, I think. But at one point, the vulnerability database was actually open source at some point, And I think probably is no longer. And just want to talk about your intentions, I guess. What was the thought process around open sourcing the CLI and maybe even the vulnerability databases and why it is no longer open source again? What was some of the thought process and nuances around that? I mean, I always anchor in the user and the use case. And I think what's the easiest, you know, what's the best way to satisfy the needs of that user? And so when it comes to the CLI, I said, well, if I'm a developer and I want to test my application, what would I do? Well, you know, we started with Node.js, which is probably a conversation on its own on sort of niching in a community first, but we focused on Node.js. And in Node.js, you would run npm install-g, something, and then you would run it. That's how you run all your test tools. And so clearly, that's how you should run Sneak as well. And so it feels like the most natural way to do it. To do so, the CLI had to be open source. And so fine, you know, like, let's do it. And it required the service. It never worked on its own. It still required the communication because it had to work with uh, uh, with a vulnerability database that was online. And, you know, as a fun anecdote, or like an interesting anecdote, at the beginning, we were very afraid. We wanted to reduce friction. So we were very afraid of introducing authentication. And so we ran with anonymous users. And after about, you know, I don't know, nine months or something of like suffering, or maybe even more, but a year was suffering with unknowns. We had this sort of product and there was usage and we kept like guessing, is it the same users? Is it not the same users? I think it was less, uh, today, I think it's a little bit more commonplace to put analytics and such kind of into the CLI. It was kind of less common back then. We said, look, we need to authenticate the users. Free authentication, but we have to know who these people are. And we introduced a free, and we were super fearful of it. And we introduced, like, you know, we said this warnings, like this sort of like, look, it's going to be. We introduced like an, an easy flow, like a sneak auth, opens a browser, opens it back up. Like we invested in that UX and it just worked. Nobody, nobody ran away, you know, no drama, you know, everybody just sort of works. So sometimes you're kind of afraid of your own shadow. The vulnerability database, you know, it has the opposite case, which is, open sourcing the vulnerability database was just a token, was just a symbol. So it's like, who wants a vulnerability database? You know, like who 
nobody wants a vulnerability database. It's only like tools providers or tools builders that want a vulnerability database because for any kind of whatever mirror mortal, you want tools that consume vulnerability database and sort of give you the relevant insight. You don't want to know about these sort of thousands and thousands of vulnerabilities. And so eventually it was just like, why are we bothering and investing? So I think almost always the answer to these questions comes down to who is it for and what for, you know, for what purpose? And I think that guides a lot of decisions. Founders are, are very enamored with their product and with their technology, and they like to sort of revolve things around principles and how the product was built. And I like to tell founders, like, nobody cares about your product. You know, it's not, doesn't mean you're not building something awesome, but nobody cares about your product. You know, people care about the problem that you are solving for them. And so why are you telling me about your product? Like your messages should be about the pain that you are solving for me. And then it should be designed and elegant for me. And it should magically do stuff and then they'll get excited about the product and you can go off and talk about the product. But, you know, at the beginning, it has to be around that. And so for us, the, the mission is develop fast, stay secure. You know, that's the ethos. That's what I'm here to help you do. And I will open source or, you know, whatever, or SaaS or whatever, to the extent I need to be able to, to kind of deliver on that promise. So you mentioned earlier how in the early days, it wasn't just like hockey stick up to the right. Like it took some belief and time to really like scale sneak into like the behemoth that it is today. Can you talk a bit about what some of the moments were where things really started to click, where like momentum really started and anything you did, whether it was around product marketing or key hires or things that that really were game changing, thinking back and like moments where things started to really take off? So there were a bunch of them, our CFO likes to call them kinks in the curve, you know, when sort of it tips up. I'd give it as a timeline, you know, for Snake. So I'd say first year in Snake was discovery. It was really about launching the product, successfully getting developer adoption, figuring out the right use of it, eventually culminated in that sort of GitHub app and opening it up so that people can pay in a GA that came out maybe 11 or so months after incorporation and maybe about nine months or six, eight months after launch. And then a couple of months where nobody purchased and kind of the disillusionment of that happening. So that was probably like during that year, I'd say the key learning or the key pivotal moment was that GitHub integration that really changed the curve in terms of successful adoption of the product, not just hype, but actual successful continuous usage. But it came hand in hand with the realization that nobody's buying. And then the subsequent year was really all about trying to figure out why. You know, why are they doing it? Maintaining the conviction to, to developer. And there wasn't really one event during that time. In hindsight, I would say that what we've learned is we've learned that security needs breadth. And so we learned we had to add multiple languages. There were all these like blind spots. So we were selling. Our ideal profile was a modern development organization that cares about security. At the time, basically 100% of those or like a very large percentage of those were using GitHub Enterprise, which was on-prem at the time. Lo and behold, we did not support an on-prem source code management solution. And it wasn't like a conscious decision. It was just like, we didn't think of it the way I'm describing it right now. And so Sun was like, oh, you know, like crap, this is the ideal profile and we are not supporting that person. And so we innovated, you know, we sort of, we thought about it and we came up with this thing that today, I think you see a lot more of this broker, this idea of like, why don't you run a tiny little thing inside and it would only upload the very kind of key information to the cloud so that the organization can be comfortable that their source code is not uploaded to the cloud and we don't need to go through that compliance hell, but we are able to service you in a SaaS kind of low-cost fashion. 
And the broker was a great innovation. And I think, again, I enjoy when I see it now in sort of startups and models of this nature. But it came out of a need once again. You know, it's like, okay, here's a need. So here, let's fix the problem. We've always been product first. So a lot of small curves, like the GitHub integration, then realizing how to do GitHub Enterprise, and then eventually getting that to a critical mass. And about two and a half years, we were still, you know, I think about 600, 650K of ARR, but that was up from about 100K four months prior. So it really started to uh, to hit. And so that was really the commercial success curve. And from there on, you know, we got like uh, uh, the tailwinds of the developer adoption and uh, and we hit that out. There have been a bunch of others, but maybe I'll mention one more, which was through an acquisition. True to our sort of developer security platform vision, about three years, we launched a container security product, which we started building, you know, and we, we built those out and that grew. And then we, you know, we launched an infrastructure as code product that we also built. And we knew that we needed to round this out. We needed a static analysis solution. We needed an ability to scan your code for vulnerabilities. I built a static analysis solution in my past and I swore off it. And, you know, my statement was, we're not going to provide a security static analysis solution unless we invent some new math, you know, like it's, it's, it's just sort of too hard to make it accurate, make it performant, make it developer friendly. And then at some point we said like, but we really need one. Let's seek out a company that has invented some new math you know, and, uh, and see if we do it. And eventually, and, you know, it took us nine months we spoke to all the static analysis companies that you know were modern and new. None of them really kind of fit the bill. We're very close with one and just eventually felt like they were just too shallow. And eventually we came across deep code and we had to uh it was you know that deal died about three times before it materialized. And that was incredible. And deep code was not from security. They were building quality analysis, they were building code analysis that were not for security. But because we have come to understand what is it that we need, we knew it when we saw it. And uh, I think that was a great deal all around. And today that's a product that is, you know, competing with our original product in terms of, you know, who's going to sell more. And so that's been a very kind of key pivotal motion. And acquisitions in general have been a good uh, motion for us. Maybe I'll mention one more pivotal, like the opposite of the we didn't die moment. So about a year and a half in, we had all this great traction outside of usage and we had no revenue. And some investors kind of uh, circled around, you know, to maybe do a preemptive and a bunch of them came kind of around the same time and, you know, felt very serious. And so I, you know, I turned on all the others, you know, I sort of, okay, look, somebody's going to do a preemptive and all that. And everybody basically came in excited by what they saw outside, looked inside, saw that we have no revenue, thought, okay, look, it's the classic developer tool pitfall. Like, you know, a lot of developer love, but no revenue, no business to be had and went away. But I've turned all of them on. So at this point, like, you know, everybody has kind of inspected the business I got a few offers. I, I didn't get the right offer from the right investor. Like, you know, I, that was sort of exciting enough. At the same time, like literally the day of one of those offers, my father-in-law passed away. So we had like, you know, in the in the morning, you know, an offer in the evening, a call from Israel, you know, pack up to sort of fly to Israel. It was a really kind of crazy time. And I think, so that was probably like the lowest point on it. And I think what has happened there, like in terms of pivotal is really this, like indeed kind of reaffirmation or, you know, conviction that says, this is what I want to do. This is what we want to do. You know, we're sort of believers in this sort of developer lens. And either we'd rather try that and go all the way and crash and burn, you know, if, if that's what needs to be, then pivot, you know, and sort of go uh, go into a more traditional security path. And, um, you know, we're fortunate enough to have had Bold Start as investors that were believers and they topped us up over there and they're doing it. And they've been an amazing partner kind of throughout the journey. And then, you know, a year later, not not right away, right? Like a year later, we were sort of in, uh, okay, off to the races and uh, doing well. So sometimes it's about conviction that you're on the right path versus a course correction. This reminds me, we asked the same question to Armand at Hashicorp, actually on our podcast. You know, he said, 
the product took a long time, basically, with very little revenue. There was just purely open source adoption. And they have to really talk about it with their investors to be online that we're not going to actually even do much revenue at all. It's all pushing. Uh, I remember asking him why he has the conviction that this is the path he should took. And he saw how pivotal the change in the companies that adopted it, how big of a change and how the impact was. When he saw it firsthand, I saw how people, how the smartest, right, the, the really the, one of the best engineering teams are all starting to adopt it. It's a big enough sign that this is going to change industries. And I wonder, is there something similar for you? Because you have a lot of self-serve, so developer or early growth, right? And I know that took a long journey for you. What was like beyond your personal conviction that there should be a product like this exist? What are you seeing in your users? Are they telling you things that you think are even reinforcing your ideas or you feel like there's this actually a change of industries coming? We just need a little bit more longer. Or is just purely based on, <laughs> we'll make it, yeah, we just love users, we'll make, is there anything more contextual than that? I think some element of it is conviction about where the market is headed and the conviction that this has to happen, that maybe I deliver it and maybe I don't, but it has to happen, that you can secure software from the outside in this sort of world of DevOps. The other thing was we were actually successful where everybody said we will fail. We just didn't succeed in the other part that used to be sort of a little bit easier in security because the claim at the beginning was developers don't care about security. They're not going to use the product. And actually there, we were successful. We were successful in the beginning. We had thousands and tens of thousands of users use the product, love the product, tweet about the product, a security product that, you know, the very same product, the type of product that everybody said developers will never use. Now, from there, you know, we couldn't sell the thing. We couldn't get anybody to sort of sign a check, but we sort of felt like we correctly focused and cracked the biggest problem, the biggest challenge in developer security, and that that is what matters most. We probably underestimated how hard it is to do the others. But I got to say that like that tunnel vision was probably also the sort of the source of success, you know, like had we hedged and we sort of said, look, we also know that security needs this and therefore we'll do this for developers, but this for security is like, I don't know what would have happened. I can easily see us having normalized and not kind of, you know, gotten the sort of more revolutionary change that we've done. So, I mean, if you're going to counter position, I don't know if you know the sort of the uh, seven powers from Hamilton Helmer, you know, I'm a fan of the uh, of the strategy framework, you know, and so in it, counter positioning is a great sort of a view on it. So if you're going to counter position, you have to be kind of committed to it. And for us, this sort of notion of like, we're going to win developers, that's a counter position to how the security industry worked. And so you have to, you have to stay true to it. Yeah. And I love how, like having a strong counter position, it also gives you the potential to be kind of like the first mover in a space and have a lot of space between you and anybody else who comes after it. So, I mean, it's it's really powerful hearing the story and your conviction from early on. I wanted to talk a bit about your personal journey as a founder and in particular, your decision to bring in an outside CEO, Peter McKay, fairly early in the company's journey. And it's funny, we actually had the same conversation with Armand and HashiCorp because they did something similar. How did you think about that? Like, what were the factors that you considered? And then also, like, why Peter in particular? Yeah, and, you know, funny enough, I've actually consulted with Armand, who did it a bit before me. He gave me his perspective at the time. So it wasn't an easy decision. I think, first of all, like, for context, what was happening at the time, Snake was exploding. So it has gone from sort of, you know, 23 people to 85 people in a year. You know, it was probably about 150 people six months later when Peter joined. And what I realized was happening was that I was spending all my time like scaling the company, you know, like 
all my energies were around, you know, like how do we not break the culture as we grow? How do we sort of form the sales team and all that? And I had no time to do what I loved the most and what I'm best at, which is product strategy and vision and where it's headed. And, you know, at the same time, we had like, as long as it was just sort of running smoothly, maybe I wasn't as sort of shaken up, but then a couple of like market moves have happened at the time and, and they they required that sort of strategic thinking. And I was like, well, who do I delegate that to? Well, nobody nobody else can sort of do this right now or nobody's better equipped to do that than you. But I had no time. I was building those. So it forced some soul searching. And I it kind of occurred to me that I don't want to be like a big company CEO. You know, around the same time as this thing was coming in, you're kind of faced with sort of a, oh, this might actually be, you know, fine. I know we've been telling it before, but this might actually be a big thing. You know, maybe this becomes a public company and kind of grows into it. Do I want to be a public company CEO? No, <laughs> I don't want to be a public company CEO. And, uh, you know, like I had to, to sort of think about this and sort of realize, well, I don't really want that. Like I'm excited by other things. I consider myself kind of a good leader, but kind of a mediocre manager. You know, I don't I don't think that's where my kind of passion or skills take place. And so I had that mindset. And at the same time, Peter, who was on my board, I've known Peter for a few, I had an unfair advantage here. So like Peter was on my board from the beginning of Sneak. He was on my board in my previous startup, which I sold to Akamai. He was the CEO of the company that acquired earlier on in my journey. So I've known him for about 15 years. I brought him onto my board because I think highly of him and because we have a great kind of relationship. And because when I raise a question, Peter thinks about it from a totally different starting point than I do and vice versa. And so when we reach the same conclusion, we have very high confidence that he's right. And he's massively different than I am, but I sort of felt like I know that he shared the same values. So I saw an opportunity. He had just finished his journey at Veeam. You know, it wasn't obvious for him at all to kind of make a bet on it. He quite literally took, like, I think he got to like 2 billion in revenue at Veeam and he kind of went down. We were maybe at like two or 3 million at the time. So, you know, he had to do the soul searching and realize that what he loves doing best is build companies. And he was already excited about Sneak and about those, and he's been close to the company. And so I think that was the sort of the journey and the opportunity. And what I would say is kind of repeatable here for, for people is, one is, you know, you have to figure out what do you want to do? Like the founder privilege is that you you get a chance to try being in a role. If you're in a CEO and you're not good, you know, you're not doing a job, you probably shouldn't be the CEO. If you're doing a good job, you still need to ask is this what I want to do? You know, is this what's right? And also people kind of make the mistake of thinking that you're either CEO or you step out of the company. And that's wrong. You know, that's sort of not correct. That's not what happened with us, you know, not what happened with Armon. So you have to do it. The second is that just because something is good doesn't mean you can't make it better. You know, I perceived it that the company would really benefit from my bandwidth as a product strategy kind of product visionary. And that Peter was a much better CEO than I was, you know, that he kind of brought in all sorts of knowledge and skills. And uh, I still think that was the right decision. And so I always look for things to kind of make it better. So it starts from your desires and your sort of wishes. You have the right as a founder, as long as you're doing a good job, to keep that sort of CEO job and grow it. But it continues to what you want to do. It's not an easy move. If it wasn't for the Peter opportunity, I probably would have like waited at least a year and it is a risky move. So I was in a relatively safe place. And even that was an effort. But I think it's important. And I think you're just as well, just as likely to get in trouble if you, you know, stick to the role just because despite you don't want it. 2015, there wasn't that many developer-focused security products. 2022, 2023, feels like there's one every week <laughs> that's coming up now. Any advice you'll give, especially, you know, founders are going after developer-first security products and companies, which are plenty now. But a lot of them, I think, are still early to the journey. Uh, what is number one advice you would tell them? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm kind of happy to see it, right? I feel like uh, 
Think doesn't have a timeline now, right? It's sort of we're building a generational company, we're building you know a company that would uh, run forever. Sometimes the downside of that is that you can't like stamp to say accomplished, you know, like <laughs> accomplished. You know, you're continuing to do it every time you're dealing with the next problem. But uh, I'd like to think that the acceptance that developer security is a thing and that developers will embrace a security product uh, if the right sort of solution is presented is now like accepted. And so I'm happy to see that. I think it's hard. Developer security is hard because we still have this sort of dissonance between the needs of developers and the budget holders in security. And so you have to have high conviction to it. What I would say is, you know, don't boil the ocean. Sort of pick, like, I think a lot of companies, they they say dev first security, but they don't really mean it because they're trying to be, you know, a full-on platform. If you're trying to take on Snake, you know, good luck to you, and that's a different story. But if you're sort of, you know, looking to kind of get in with that sort of philosophy and kind of carve your space, as it stands, you're going to be challenged with this sort of depth versus breadth problem and with all the different stacks that developers are using. And so if you also multiply that by, and I'm going to cover all these different security problems, you're probably going to be very, very thin and you're not going to be developer-friendly. What I do find that is that still today, most developer-first security companies, they say developer-first because you know they can relate to the market size of Sneak. But in practice, they say developer-first security, but they're not product-led. They say developer-first security, but they go to security events, you know, not developer events. They say developer-first security, but their product is all about risk and sort of prioritization. And so if you really are committed to this lens, think about what would it take for a developer to actually embrace your product and be willing to take the longer road to getting developer love, not just security budget. Awesome. Well, I think that's a fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much, Guy. We're huge fans. Definitely check out Sneak if you're a developer who cares about security and also check out Guy's podcast, The Secure Developer. But thank you so much, Guy. We really appreciate you being on with us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on.